Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Haggai chapter 2. We'll finish the book this morning. Before I read 20 through 23, let me pray one more time. Father, we come before you this morning and we want to well, we want to thank you for the opportunity to set aside uh, the normal hustle and bustle of life and gather here together to worship you and spend time learning about you and from you, from your word. <clears throat> Father, we know that all of your promises are true, and we know that ultimately those of us who believe in Christ are headed for a life where there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain. And we draw tremendous comfort from that truth, but we also must confess that while we're yet here, there's plenty of sorrow and sickness and pain. So, Holy Spirit, we need your help to focus this morning and be encouraged by your word. Jesus, we need you to draw our hearts and our attention. And Father, we need you to make yourself known to us. And we pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. Haggai 2, verse 20 says, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the, tw on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. <coughs> so it's still December the 18th, 520 BC. This is, uh, this is the same day that Haggai preached the message that we heard last week. Um, and it's almost like he's not preaching to the people. It's almost like this message is just for this guy's Zerubbabel. And I think to appreciate why God addresses Zerubbabel specifically, what we have to do is zoom out and take a look at about a thousand years of history that has Zerubbabel right in the middle, like right at that 520 mark. So we gotta go all the way to 1000 and then all the way to almost zero to understand what's going on here. And what I wanna do is begin in 2 Samuel 7. So flip backward in your Bible to there. And we're gonna pick it up, just for the sake of time, we'll pick it up in verse four. This is after David expresses his desire to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem before one ever existed. <clears throat> that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? 
I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's, it, I mean, it, an interesting statement in light of what we've just seen in Haggai, right? Where there seemed to be this... Um, rebuke built into the fact that God didn't have a house. But I asserted at the beginning of this book, and I've asserted consistently through it, that I don't think really the temple of the Lord is the issue. It's the, the lack of a heartfelt desire to commune with God on the part of his people that was the issue. And God, having never been preoccupied with buildings or kingdoms on earth, is, is trying to make us understand and was trying to make these people in Jerusalem understand that what he is preoccupied with, what he is interested in, is being in relationship with us. So you see this at the outset. When David wants to build the temple, God basically says, what makes you think I need a temple? In verse 8, still in 2 Samuel 7, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth or of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So just on a side note, this is the promise of rest that's instituted in the creation narrative. There's this mandate to rest one day in seven. It's confirmed in the Mosaic law when God gives as one of the Ten Commandments, six days you shall work and then one day you will rest. But what that first day of rest in the creative narrative and the, the commanded day of rest in the Mosaic law is pointing to ultimately is a promised day of rest for all the people of God that we are moving inexorably toward. And that's when we go from this life to the one to come. One of the ways that we remind ourselves that that's what we're heading for is we do this. We're still 2,000 years after Jesus meeting on the first day of the week and setting aside time and energy to worship together and seek to encourage one another. All of us, well, for sure, the older you get, the more this is true. Simply put, we, we, get, we get tired, right? As the week goes on, as life goes on, as more and more of our transient history is behind us, we're, we're just, we're more easily wore out. We're more easily left tired emotionally and physically. Part of what's going on here and the reason that 
we're so enthusiastic to do this thing in Springfield is that we so desperately need a place to rest. But we're not here to build some kind of a totem to God. This is as much about our health and well-being as it is our engaging the culture around us, right? Verse 12 When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall be, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And here's the primary reason that I wanted to look at 2 Samuel 7. So flip forward now to 2 Kings 25. There's this promise we just heard in 2 Samuel 7 that David's throne and kingdom would be established for how long? Forever. Forever, right? But as you work your way through 1 and 2 Kings, what you see, in my opinion, it's like 1 Kings 2, the toilet gets flushed. And then for the next several hundred years, you know, when you first flush an older toilet, it has to kind of wind up before everything goes down. That's what's happening in Kings. And then you come to chapter 25 and all jokes aside, this is what it looks like. Verse one, in the ninth year of his reign, in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his enemy, sorry, all of his army was scattered from him. They captured the king and listen to this. This is how this is how it ends. They captured the king of Israel, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. They passed sentence on him. They slaughtered his sons before his eyes. And then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. And that is the end of David's descendants sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. In fact, it's the end of the throne in Jerusalem, and it's the beginning of the end of the temple in Jerusalem. And it begs the question, is God not faithful? Are his promises conditional? Is he not sovereign? Were his plans somehow foiled? Did he, did he really, really want there to always be a king on the throne in Jerusalem? But it just couldn't happen because people were too awful. 
Were his, were his plans frustrated by the Chaldeans, by Nebuchadnezzar? Or worse yet, and this probably resonates most with us, were his plans foiled by his own people's remaining corruption? Don't, I mean, in our honest moments, if you have a functioning conscience, right? So I, I don't want to... I don't want to comfort anybody if they're just in their sin and they wipe their mouth and say that they've done no wrong and they don't really care that they're in sin. But for those of you who know that you have this remaining sin and you wish that you could be rid of it, isn't there a part of you that constantly is tempted to think, I'm screwing up God's plans for me because I don't know how to control myself? And isn't stuff like this part of the reason we think that? God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, and then you see Zedekiah's sons murdered in front of him and his eyes put out. Oh, by the way, don't feel too bad for Zedekiah. He liked to spill the blood of innocent people too. But it's the end of David's line in Jerusalem. In the providence of God, probably because of the public nature of my faith, meaning part of what I do for a living now is I pastor a church. In the providence of God, I am frequently confronted by people who have questions about Christianity, and that's putting it nicely, right? The most recent attack on my beliefs came in the form of somebody who's very well-read and very well-learned, identifying for me the faults and failures of all of my heroes in the Bible. And it was, I imagine, somewhat to his surprise that I didn't defend any of them. In fact, heartily agreed with his assessment of their character. Because if you go back through Scripture, what do you see? Well, let's just start with Adam and Eve. I mean, less than stellar. <laughs> they committed the first sin. That's a bad rap on your sheet, right? And then to, to follow that up, their parenting is put on display when one of their sons murders another of their sons. So far, I'm very thankful that everybody that I know has avoided that fate. <laughs> we can skip to Noah. What's the first thing he does after the ark is parked? He gets drunk and <laughs> naked for no reason. Just gets naked and drunk. And his kids see it. So God wipes all the sinful flesh off the earth. And what does Noah do the minute he can get off the boat? He acts like a, a, a ding-dong, right? Go to Moses. Had a serious anger problem. Samson, the judge, was a whoremonger. Gideon, the judge, was a coward. King Saul, we don't even like him. He was an absolute madman egomaniac narcissist, right? Solomon, David's son by Uriah's wife, thought his 700 marriage was the one that would stick. <laughs> Peter was a loudmouth and a hypocrite. And then we have all the saints in history since then. Like it's not... There's nothing impressive here. And if you find me somebody in the Bible whose moral failures aren't put on full display for us to see, I'll just point out to you that that's someone the Bible doesn't go into a lot of detail on. Because everybody that's ever lived since Adam and Eve fell is a failure. Morally. 
So here's my question. Did their failures stop God's plans? No, I won't even let you answer. The answer is no. Their failures did not stop God's plans. When Zedekiah was blinded and taken into Babylon, never to be heard from again, what we hear is the death rattle of God's promises to his people in Jerusalem. That's what we hear. And we could certainly say that that was due to the sins of his people in Jerusalem. Amen? I mean, cause and effect. That's what happens. But then we come to Haggai. And in Haggai, there's this this history kind of built into the narrative where everything in Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people had been shipped off to captivity. Seventy years later, a hodgepodge of inexperienced Israelites make their way back and start trying to rebuild. They get stymied a quarter of the way into rebuilding the temple. And then 16 years later, God has to raise up Haggai just to like remind them why they're there so that they'll start the building process again. And then as they're doing it, as they're obeying, they all can't help but stand there and scratch their heads and notice that what they're making is pretty ramshackle compared to what used to be there. It's just like right out of the gate, it's more disappointment. There is no king in Judah. There's not. Who's the king? Oh, the king of the Persians. That's not God's man. So verse 21, back in Haggai 2, says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Overthrow kingdoms, destroy the strength of kingdoms and nations, overthrow the chariots and their riders, the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 42.3 puts it this way. A bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not quench. And it turns out the reason that Zerubbabel gets his very own sermon is because there is a smoldering wick in Jerusalem that probably a lot of people weren't even aware of at the time. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Again, for the sake of time, we'll pick it up in verse 6 with a sentence fragment. Matthew 1, 6 says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abiah, Abiah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. 
And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, rather, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So Zerubbabel was not just some random bureaucrat appointed by Persia to serve as governor in Jerusalem. He is a descendant of David. That's why he gets his very own sermon. So there's three things I'd like to point out to you this morning. First, in Matthew, look at this mess of a genealogy. David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Followed by, with the exception of Josiah, maybe Asa and Hezekiah, a who's who of wicked kings who ruled over Judah, who were all descendants of David. David's adultery is included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we didn't even read it, but if you go back up a little further, Rahab is mentioned. And can I just say, even though she was probably gorgeous, I don't think Rahab is somebody anybody wanted their son bringing home. And there she is in the genealogy. And then Zerubbabel is in there. So this is, this is second. First is the whole thing's a mess. Second, Zerubbabel is in there. He was a descendant of David. He was God's man in Jerusalem. He was proof of God's faithfulness in spite of the wickedness and the depravity of all of these people. He was the evidence that God hadn't been defeated. And here, Haggai tells Zerubbabel from God, I'm about to shake everything, heaven and earth, and overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength, the chariots, the riders. And on that day, I will make you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, which brings us to the third thing. Look what God brings about from this ash heap of humanity. Amen. Ultimately, who is at that, the end of that notorious line of David? At the very end, the one who still sits on a throne, Amen. reigning in righteousness, is Jesus Christ. Now li listen, if God can bring Jesus from the line of David, what can't he do with your life if he wants to? the most magnificent, breathtaking human that ever was came from the most stunning, breathtakingly wicked group of people that ever were. Can he not redeem from your tired, worn out, messy life something beautiful and pleasing to him? I know I'm not the only one who sometimes I think my life is a train wreck. Like things have not turned out the way that I'd hoped in many respects. In many respects they have. This is not me whining because I don't think it's the job of the shepherd to stand up in front of the sheep and complain about how hard his job is. But there's a lot of things that haven't turned out the way that I'd hoped. And, and even in moments when things are going pretty well for you, see if this is true. See if this describes you, okay? 
I like to think of my life not linearly, but vertically. Okay, so I think I'm always building up. And I'm on a tower now that's got 41 years of building in it. And there are quite a few floors as I peer over the edge and look down that are held together with bubble gum and popsicle sticks. And a part of me that thinks, well, this bad boy could go down at any moment. It doesn't, like, it's not great. There's some floors that are like, that's amazing. But like right underneath it is, how did I even get finished with that? How did I get through years where you look back and you're like, what? What even was that? Who was that? There's shameful secrets in your past that threaten the hope of your future. Regrets and gut-wrenching losses, or maybe, maybe it just feels like, like you don't have a lot of shame. You didn't do anything really awful like I have. You just think that time has gone by a whole lot faster than you expected it to. And you're not sure you've made the most of it. You wasted too many critical moments and you don't know how to redeem what's left. For the younger people, this is just for you. Do you hear the adults describing the future in, in not real glowing terms as though we were prophets or the sons of prophets? Because inflation is going to ruin everything. Warmongers in Washington are going to get us engaged in a fight with Russia based on deceit alone. The American dream is dead. Your votes don't matter. Like, so what's the point? Do you hear this? Because I hear it. And I'm starting to hear myself saying it. <laughs> the point is that when we look at our circumstances and there is little to no reason to be optimistic, we should maybe consider Zerubbabel. Yeah. What's God telling Zerubbabel ultimately? What do you think the most important Homeschoolers, a verb is an action word. What do you think the most important <laughs> verb is in this text? Let's go through. I'm about to shake. Shake's a verb. To overthrow. To destroy. Overthrow again. I will take you. I will make you. Or is it that last one? For I have chosen you. And which of those verb statements can we safely apply to ourselves? Is God promising that through me, he's going to overthrow North Korea? Negative. It's not going to happen. Nor is he promising that to you. But there's a promise here that rings and is woven all through the rest of Scripture. Look at Matthew 10. Verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. 
How did these men become Jesus' disciples? Does anybody know? Yeah, there wasn't a one of them who came to Jesus and went, hey, I've heard you're doing some really good things and I'd like to come along. In fact, in John 15, 16, he specifically says, you did not choose me, I chose you. Let's look at it because there's some really good stuff there. John 15. We're almost done. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. God chooses people and folks, people are a mess. All of us are a mess. Nobody's nailing it. Why does he choose them? According to John 15, 16, why did he choose them? Oh, to bear fruit. And what's the fruit that we're going to bear? Our pasts? Our failures? Or is there something else that God is producing out of the ash heap of your life that's going to be pleasing to him and a blessing to others? I, yeah, I think our pasts matter. I don't mean to say like, it doesn't matter, nothing matters. The shameful, awful, heartbreaking things that you have done and that I have done most certainly matter. And you know it matters because Jesus hung on a cross suffering, gasping for air, and ultimately died because of the evil, wicked, horrible things that we've done. But he hung there and died to deal with those things that we had done so that he could produce from our lives something beautiful and meaningful and valuable and something that would last. This is the gospel. Christ died for sinners that we might be in communion and relationship with our creator. All those who believe that will never die, but will live with him for eternity because he chose us. So then here's the question. Like Zerubbabel, is there anybody here so insignificant as to not fit right into that family tree of Jesus Christ? Is there anybody here like Solomon so unfaithful as to not fit right in to that family tree that concludes with the person Jesus Christ? Is there anyone here so breathtakingly gangster and wicked like David who killed people to cover up his sexual crimes that wouldn't fit right into that family tree that leads to the person Jesus Christ? Is there anyone here who's not a drunk, innocent, blood-shedding mongrel like so many of those kings in Judah that wouldn't fit right in 
to that tree that leads to the person and work of Jesus Christ? And the answer is no, we all fit right into that. And that's the promise of the gospel. And that's why God addresses Zerubbabel because he wants him to know, listen, I know what you see when you look at the plot of your life isn't much, but you need to understand there's something bigger going on here than you and the building of this temple. And that is I am working out in you all of my plans for salvation for all of my people. Now you have a job to do. You have a role to play in that story. People are going to look at your life. And some of you, I know, some of you hope to God they don't. Because there's so much shame and so much fear and so much guilt in the way that you've conducted yourself. But listen to me. If he can redeem David, and David can write like this much of your Bible, I think he can redeem you. And we don't get together to remember ourselves and how wonderful we are on Sunday, do we? In fact, this Sunday, we're going to take Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul writes and says, I've received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man or a woman or a kid must examine themselves. And in so doing, He is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And what Paul is trying to tell us that Jesus already told us is unless you are one of Christ's, you have nothing to remember here. We're not saying you don't get to have any because you're not a Christian. We're saying don't do that and fake it and make it pretend and make it not matter. Take and eat and remember his body being broken for you to redeem your life. Take and drink and remember his blood being shed for you to cleanse you of all that unrighteousness. That's why we're doing this because we need to be reminded My sins are ever-present before me. I don't have a lot of trouble remembering those. What I have a lot of trouble remembering is that God has faithfully cleansed me of all unrighteousness. So let's pray, and then what we'll do is I'll ask, uh, we'll we'll just, there's, there's bread and cup back there on the, what did Lisa call it? The baptismal box, and then, there's the dunk tank. Then there's bread and, and a cup here. So just kind of like split the room. And the way that we do this here is, um, men, this is an opportunity to be the spiritual leader in your home. I don't, I'm not opposed to administering the Lord's Supper and praying for everybody. And we need to start doing that. We can start doing that. But what this is, is a chance for you to step up, gather your family around you, and lead them in the remembrance of what Jesus has done for you.
and demonstrate for them how meaningful it is. So take a moment, pray with your wife and kids. If you're not here with anybody and, and you just want somebody to gather with, you're, you're free to jump in with, with any other. Anybody in this place will welcome you with their family. Uh, I don't want you to feel like you're, you don't have anybody because you have anybody, literally. You want to come over with me? Come over with me. You want to go with Garrett? You can go, or Asus? You can go with, you can go with Cecil. Like everybody's going to have somebody that will wrap their arm around you and pray with you this morning. All right. And then when I think everybody is done, um, we'll stand up and we'll sing our closing song and, and pray and be finished, all right?